Hello, everyone. Welcome to Green IU, the podcast for responsible technologists building a greener digital world, one byte at a time. Our guests from across the globe share insights, tools, and alternative approaches enabling people within the tech sector and beyond to boost digital sustainability. You might have heard about artificial intelligences last month. Yeah, sorry about the joke. But you might also have heard about the rising concern about the environmental footprint about artificial intelligence and data growth. Actually, I recorded a full episode with Jerry McGovern and Katie Singer in January about what they call data tsunami. And since then, we've seen new studies about the water consumption of ChatGPT, about the electricity consumption, training and requesting these artificial intelligence models that have started to raise concerns about the sustainability of these new technologies. But on the other end, I'm bombarded with articles, posts, and discussion with peers and clients about the expected benefits of AI for humankind. So I recon this question is on a lot of tech practitioners today. How to leverage AI and data to regenerate the planet and our societies rather than destroying them? And to answer it, I decided to ask people I could trust to tell more about data for good. For real. And by real, I mean without overlooking all the impacts of using AI, including the negative ones. And believe me, Lou, Theo, and Anastasis are to be trusted. Lou and Theo founded Data for Good in France five years ago. Today, this community gathers more than 3,000 data scientists and data engineers doing pro bono work for NGO and nonprofit. And Data for Good has been making headlines in early November with their job on 4022 climate bombs worldwide and which companies and banks are supporting them. But that's something Data for Good has been familiar with. Just last year, Lou was uh, listed among the 100 thought leaders who give meaning to technology in France, kudo, and CEO was getting attention with the climate Q&A using ChatGPT, but trained only with IPCC reports. And it was important to me to have another point of view than a French one in this episode, and Anastasis Tamastis was the perfect match. Thanks to the Climate Fresk Network, I discovered the founder of Dataforia in Greece and his amazing track record in the impact business sector, most of them powered by AI. So welcome, Lou, Theo, and Anastasis. Thanks a lot for joining Greenio today. That's our third attempt to get a recording, but this one will be the good one. Hello, everyone. Well, hi. Hi, Gail. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Before we jump in the both bright and dark side of AI, I would like to ask a very simple question, but a very tricky one. Where are we with artificial intelligence in the world? What's really the spread of AI in both tech companies, but in regular companies, uh, governments, etc.? And is the technology moving that fast? How much is hype and how much is really big acceleration? It's, it's an interesting question because it's been um, like a year that, of course, ChatGPT has came out uh, around almost a year now, and it's changed a bit how people see AI. And uh, with it, we, we at Data for Good, we created a, a white paper on generative AI, and we actually discovered that 
a lot of people in the general public didn't really know the history of, of AI and still had a, like a lot of mis misconceptions about the topic. And a, a lot of people, for, for example, don't know that AI actually has been around for more than 80 years and has had a lot of waves and evolutions around the years, uh, has already enabled to do lots of stuff. For example, I, I always say uh, when we explain about the topic that uh, uh, Google search has been using the Transformers technology, which is in ChatGPT for more than seven years in production already every day. So people are using AI every day in their, in their Google search. And this is, uh, this has been like a constant evolution for the past 80 years, even if there has been some increasing pace, uh, at some points in history. But still, there is something new about today, which is the, for me, the general public adoption about those technologies, uh, which is something that is, has actually struck a lot of people by surprise. Um, by the fact that it was not especially something that different. Of course, we can do a lot of things a lot better uh, since we have access to generative AI technologies. But still, uh, the f it was only the fact that like 200 million people now use ChatGPT every day. That was a big change. And people now were able to actually test it and, and that made them even want to learn more about the topic. So this is actually not a technological outbreak or like a, a complete shift in what was feasible for me, but more something that now is accessible and people know that it's not something obscure, but that they can use it. And with it, there is a question of exponential uh, that when you talk about environmental issues, every time there is an exponential like this, there is a question. So there is a part of hype and a part of constant evolution for me. And I think maybe to complete what you're saying, what's interesting, um, what, what you were saying about the fact that people now are, are more aware that it's here, I feel like in the tools that we're using, there's often uh, functionalities that tell you, ask AI to do this or to do that. And this is a shift from before where there was AI, but we were not talking about it and most people were not seeing it. And maybe now it's a bit more visible than before, because since like there's been this breakthrough in a generative AI, we, we, we have the feeling as users that we're talking and that we're using it in a much more, uh, maybe like a relation almost. So I, I think it's, uh, to complete what was, what Theo was saying is that it's more visible than before and it's breaking through much more, uh, much faster, uh, than before. Anastasis, is it, is it a trend that you, you analyze this way as well, that the breakthrough is more on the public adoption than purely technological side? Absolutely. So it's more the democratization of uh, AI. It has reached massive amounts of users compared to previous uh, applications of all sorts. And I think that's where the Uh, the risk might be because our reaction time is limited with regards to the massive adoption that is happening all around us. And yes, we have been using AI over the past years without even realizing it in our phone, in the way we consume the news. Even some news we might have read uh, were generated by AI, but now it is all around us and there is all this public sentiment around it. And with it comes a lot more data that needs to be used. And with AI being so massively in production, also the infrastructure requirements 
and the electricity and technology requirements are becoming bigger as well. And you mentioned that it's more public adoption than technology, but if you read many articles, if you listen to many thought leaders, it's more like everything has changed, you know, since GPT-3 or since even ChatGPT or GPT-4 or whatever. And actually, that's not truly the case. It has more been a trend, but it creates a massive hype that, you know, everyone needs to put AI in everything. I mean, every it's exactly as you said, Lou, that stuff that were done by machine before without acknowledging that it was artificial intelligence suddenly needs to be labeled as AI because it's it's better to sell. So I still see this massive hype wave. And that leads me to another question, but a similar one. How you spot a uh, hypist, I would say. I've just made this word, but I love it. Uh, so how you how you spot hypist <laughs> and how you spot true thought leaders, who do you follow actually? And who do you believe are um, speaking good sense about what is going on on the AI field at the moment? I think, honestly, I have w one simple rule that has worked quite well. Uh, is, is it a new labeled expert that has been around for less than a year? Uh, that means that he only knew ChatGPT as what he thinks is AI. And, and actually, it's most of the time, it's a he and not a she. And the people that have been around for many years, and especially that are scientists and engineers in the field of AI that have been applying AI in production, which is a bit different than doing a prototype using ChatGPT or, or, or just embedding such technology in your product. And at the end, after you uh, confronted the buzz, um, and there is a question of user adoption. And we think, uh, I think already a year after, now they are, they have been like, of course, adoption by users, but there have been also a lot of deception on the topic. Um, people are using it less for mundane tasks. Developers are using it a lot, but there are already a lot of people that have tried it and now feel that they're don't have a use for it. So, and that's normal. And that's a lot coming from people that are not just like experts on the topic, but just saw this trend and put it, put it in their products. So at the end, what I'm following people mostly, I, I love people at Hugging Face, for example, that are probably the one that have been advancing the most the field in open source. Uh, and as I'm spending a, like one hour a day on their platform to just to see the latest innovations and papers and following the people that are within, because they are probably gathering a lot of people uh, that actually have the same value that we have at Data for Good, uh, but at a wider scale. So that's, I would say, uh, that those are the people I'm following. On my side, I would say I'm not following uh, experts, but rather uh, the, the important thing for me is really uh, the purpose of the algorithm that's used. So uh, what what's really important for me is beside the technology, what is it aimed at? And uh, is it going in the right direction or in the wrong direction? And spoiler, uh, I feel like 95% of the usages that are made today uh, of ChatGPT are just uh, going uh, in a way that make us buy more stuff or do more things that we don't need to do. Uh, 
so that's why I'm really focused on the usages that are going to benefit for all. And I think they are some, and I'm not going to make some internal publicity, but I think the tool that uh, Tio developed that's called Climate Q&A that helps you um, navigate through IPCC reports and make uh, cl climate data accessible to citizens and to people that want to understand the problem, but uh, don't, don't, don't have the time to read uh, uh, 14,000 pages of climate reports. Uh, this kinds of usages to democratize knowledge are uh, amazing. And this is the kind of uh, things I follow. Wow, hats off to Theo for this tool, which I'm gonna definitely be checking out after our session. Um, just to add to that, uh, I guess, uh, like the most important thing in my aspect is if someone is being generally objective about uh, AI, does not treat it like a silver bullet. Uh, usually what we get out of the hype is people claiming it will change everything, it will save the world, it will destroy the world. And I don't really like dealing in, in absolutes in, in that sense. Um, definitely many hardworking people in the industry for loads of years, most of whom know how difficult it is to collect the data, to label the data, to train the right models, and how difficult it is to actually get a good trustworthy result out of AI. Um, so yeah, AI is, uh, is hard, it's very burdensome to, to get the right results. And most people who would tell you that, yeah, they would find no silver bullets and uh, no, no extreme hype and, uh, and absolutes in that. And Anastasis, if you had to pick one name, who would it be? I think I would go uh, probably back to basics, uh, back to a person, one of the people who started all of this, who started the hype uh, behind uh, AI, behind data science as well. And that would be Andrew NG, very well known in the community. And he's one of the voices that has been there from the beginning, actually. Uh, thanks a lot, Anastasis. And the two others know that I'm going to ask the same question, but actually I'm pretty sure I can do a bit of a mentalist exercise with Theo. So if you had to pick one name, Theo, who would it be? And my guess, it will start with an S. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's a good person to follow, for sure. Uh, Sasha Lucioni. She was a researcher at Mila, which is a university in Canada, and she was one of the people and actually the only one in the world to create a research paper on the carbon footprint of AI. And that is the only resource we have today to estimate what is actually emitting. Uh, and she has been like doing a lot on AI ethics and uh, AI carbon footprint. She also created a tool that we use and now we maintain at Data for Good to measure the carbon footprint of AI. So, and now she works at Hugging Face. So yeah, that's one of our, of our model. And Lou? Well, I was going to say the same person, so it's not fun. Oh my God, <laughs> that's super bad. We stole your hero. I'm sorry about yeah. that. <laughs> okay, so the fun fact is that I, I really wanted this episode to start on, on a positive note and focus on data for good. But what is really interesting is Despite the fact that you are working on very positive application of AI, the three of you started right from the start about, hey, cool down. There are some downsides as well, etc. So, okay, you know what? You won. 
I will not have a, such a positive episode, or at least not yet. And let's talk about AI as a destructive. No, I wanted to complete what yep. you were saying because I think it's really important. And the reason why we're doing it, why we're doing that, is that uh, we're facing uh, um, uh, speeches in the media or people that are all um, AI experts. They're like in 90% of the cases, they're talking about AI and technology in general, like something that is going to save us and like um, and like behaving as if we can continue exactly the same pace that we're having. We just need to change our technology behind it and we're going to be saved. And I think especially when you work in this field and you are aware of all, all the limits of those technologies, we, we really, well, I feel like I have a role to really, each time I have uh, the, the possibility to talk in public, to remember and to remind all those limits uh, because they're, they're huge and we need to say it. Uh, they are positive cases and they're amazing in science and all the, the projects that, that we can do uh, at Data for Good, but they're not the majority. And this is really important to, uh, to be said uh, when the occasion is, is happening. So technocracy won't save the word. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm under shock. <laughs> but could you elaborate a bit with maybe one example? Like, because if I understood you well, that, that's really the question of, with such a powerful tool, where are we accelerating towards? Uh, and are we accelerating in the right direction? Or I would say the other side of the same coin is, uh, well, just drop a, pinch of AI everywhere and it will solve the entire world's problem. So do you have some specific examples that you would like to share when you really believe that a terrible idea to use AI for? So, well, basically when we're talking about technology, I think what is really important to bear in mind is the materiality of this uh, world that we believe is immaterial. For instance, I think it's really funny that we're talking about the cloud as if it was something in, 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 the, in the sky that was really not material at all when we know that, for instance, 99% of the data that we exchange uh, worldwide, they're uh, circulating through uh, submarines cables, and then they're stocked into like uh, monsters of, of, um, of, uh, of metals. Uh, so everything is material. And, uh, and, uh, and so when we talk about technology, we need to remember that there are two sorts of impacts. The first one, the direct, the, 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 the materiality of it that I was talking about. And then there are also all the indirect effects. And one of the major one is called the rebound effect. And it's the fact that every time that we have um, discovered uh, or improved a technology, like used technology to improve the usage of something, in the meantime, we've increased uh, its usage. And then as a result, we, uh, the absolute emissions are always bigger. Uh, so for instance, in our daily lives, uh, we have the example of the planes, uh, because for instance, we've reduced the intensity uh, per passenger, but we've increased hugely the number of flights. And so the absolute emissions are way bigger. And so for uh, generative AI and AI in general, it's really the same thing happening. For instance, uh, to, to take an example, we can take as an example the fact that uh, it's going to, uh, like, it, it, it helps you uh, write emails uh, way faster, uh, but at the same time, it's going to uh, 
make you maybe be able to make much more emails. So if, if the objective of your emails is to send stuff, so maybe you're going to be able to sell much more stuff. Uh, we can do the same for, uh, we can, another example that I like a lot is uh, the example of uh, uh, publicity. So you can make much more, uh, you can personalize uh, much more the, the advertising that you're going to make. And so in the end, you can make it faster, but so you're going to sell much more stuff. And th these examples are, um, like, actually, I didn't find a counterexample today. Maybe somebody has it, but I don't. And Anastasis, do you have a, a counterexample? Well, actually, no, let's stick with the, the negative force. Would you like to comment on what Lou shared about the rebound effect, about accelerating in the wrong direction, just selling more stuff? Oh, uh, absolutely. And uh, I feel this is like another facet of consumerism that's uh, been evident in, in our days and uh, uh, especially since if we do flood the internet with uh, AI-generated uh, copies of emails and advertising texts, then guess what the next models will be trained on and what the degradation that might produce uh, in the future. Um, so again, some elements that uh, people should consider. When I say people, just to get back to that uh, technocratic uh, aspect of what we discussed, what I'm sort of feeling uh, leads the destructive force behind AI is limited knowledge and limited engagement with uh, the risks and the dangers around uh, artificial intelligence. Um, data centers, cloud computing, the energy they uh, they produce, uh, that's uh, the essence of your show, Gail. So we've, we've been exploring this throughout other episodes. Uh, what happens when we try to apply AI without the relevant data? I mean, we're, all of us are working at least to a certain part in climate change. Uh, we have two, two, two great aspects, global north and global south. Some climate change solutions embedded with AI uh, should apply to the global south as well. But most of the data come from the global north. So you end up trying to do good, but you might end up applying solutions where they have actually no applications because you've trained them with wrong data sets. All these are dangers and risks that we as a community should be informed of, should be informing people of, and democratizing this knowledge. When people apply AI or use AI, there should be a way for them to know what to use and what not to use. Just the way when you use the electricity or you use the water, you're aware of the dangers, you're aware of what to do, what not to do. It should reach a point where it is the same thing with artificial intelligence. That's how we can de-risk it and stop it being a sort of destructive force through its application. And actually, listening to both Lou and, and you, Anastasis, I realize that people are seeing the data that is needed to train any data algorithm a bit like the cloud. It's some kind of magical and they don't really challenge the materiality of the cloud and they don't really challenge the materiality of the data we need to use. And that creates this huge bias that you've mentioned. And actually, I think it's a very important bias. It's not an environmental bias, but yeah, if you train data mostly based on U.S 
behaviors and you try to apply with you know Madagascar just to pick to, you know my neighbors um yeah that can create a lot of issues and that's funny that this hype and all this magical thinking around AI tends to uh, overlook this uh, this aspect. I mean, am I right rephrasing it this way? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And technology in itself nowadays is political. It has been used as a political tool. So we, the users of technology, have to be political as well. The way we use it makes a statement leaves its footprint on the world based on our ethics, our responsibility. So we do have to claim this responsibility. CEO, you mentioned earlier that Sasha Luciani was the only one who wrote a research paper on the environmental footprint. That's something that both Anastasis and Lou mentioned several times, that we also need to pay attention to the electricity consumption, and I guess much more. Could you elaborate a bit? What do we know today about the environmental impact of uh, artificial intelligence? This is important because that's also where you see what you can do, actually, in terms of negative impacts. I think there are three misconceptions about the environmental impact of AI. The first one is that actually we don't know what is the environmental impact of AI. We don't have the data for it. We have ideas for it. We know that it consumes energy and water and we have a lot of data over there but no one actually measured it aside from a few people in the world so we just don't know but what we know second misconception i'd say is that people tend to focus on the the carbon footprint and the energy consumption of data centers which for me and i will give some figures is actually not that important and especially people in ai because it has been the case for a lot of years, thing that it has to come from the training phase is the most important phase. And the third misconception is that they always forgot the indirect impact. So let me give you a, a few, few figures. We think we know that uh, GPT 3.5 has be, been trained and consumed during the, inner, the, the training phase and emitted uh, around 500 tons of CO2. 500 tons of CO2, it's quite big, but it's not huge. It's like, it would be a small company of a few, maybe 10 to 30 people, or it's around 250 uh, flying back back and forth to New York, which is actually, if you divide that by 200 million users, it's actually nothing. One thing that is not, is the second direct impact is actually the use of AI. Before, uh, because we had technologies that were actually trained and used and the usage phase were actually not that uh, in like consuming energy, um, but with the transformer technology that we have already, uh, that we have now in the generative AI uh, techniques, actually the inference phase, the usage phase is as emissive as the training phase. So if you scale it to 200 million users per day, that's becoming quite a thing. And we did the exercise in our latest white paper at Data for Good. If you do the exercise, you find that it's, it's around, for GPT 3.5, around 100,000 tons of CO2. But even that, for me, if we only take that into consideration, we forget a lot of things. There was one study by McKinsey that we actually did a work on that say that a generative AI will just add to the economy uh, 4,000 a billion uh, in the, the the GDP worldwide every year, and 
uh, that it means that in each sector, you have an increase in revenues. And if you take for each sector the decarbonization trajectory, you can do a small calculation that it will mean that it would be emitting around 2 billion tons of CO2 every year. And 2 billion tons of CO2 now, it's not negligible at all. It's around 5% of the global emissions worldwide. And this is exactly a figure that represents the fact that with generative AI, people think that we will accelerate an economy that is not decarbonizing so much that it will be actually emitting 5% more of CO2 every year. And this is why we actually tend to focus uh, on the finality of the algorithm. What are you using it for? Uh, and especially stopping using it for uh, marketing and publicity or even fossil fuel extraction, actually, uh, and start using it only for good. Which makes a beautiful transition because we don't know that much what is the impact. And still, we try to use it for good. So can we try to switch now because the alerts are crystal clear about bias with data, accelerating in the wrong direction, all the political entanglement that, that you, can, you can see. But the three of you, you've managed, well, actually you tried to use it as a force for good. So let, let's get our hands a bit dirty. Can you pick a project where you say, okay, I'm going to use AI. I'm going to challenge myself about the direction. I'm going to also challenge myself about the intensity of the energy, the water usage, etc., trying to reduce it? Maybe I can uh, illustrate with an example, uh, which is one of, one of my favorite ones that we're uh, uh, doing right now at Data for Good. We've been um, helping an NGO that's called Bloom uh, for several uh, months now. And uh, this, uh, this NGO is focused on, uh, on protecting uh, the ocean and the marine life. And what we've been doing with them is uh, helping them um, track uh, the biggest boats on the sea and uh, being able to identify uh, when they were fishing in zones that were they were not allowed to. So in this case, we've really used algorithms and artificial intelligence to develop uh, algorithms that will help us detect, um, depending on the, the, the boat's trajectory, uh, whether they were fishing or not, and then match it uh, with the geo geographical uh, zones in which uh, they were identified to be, to see if they were uh, in a protected area or not. And when we uh, match the two information on whether they're fishing or not, and if they are on in a in a protected area or not, we can know uh, if uh, they are uh, violating some rules. And since we've been doing this work, we know that Bloom has uh, has been filing uh, more than 20 complaints uh, at international level in order to uh, denunciate those uh, those illegal uh, phishings. And here we, 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 we felt that we haven't totally measured uh, the impact of CO2 of those algorithms um, compared to uh, the benefits that, that they procure. But what we're sure is that uh, protecting uh, marine life is way more important than uh, the few electricity that, uh, electricity that uh, those algorithms are generating. Maybe I can continue on the data for good examples. Um, we, we have a lot of, we have a framework to see if a project is actually for good or not not talking about the moral aspect of it, but uh, we try to be uh, uh, quite logical. But the one thing that we actually 
always see that is working well and if we don't do it it won't actually have a real not being real real force for good is as Lou was saying deploying it in the field and not staying at the 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 level where it's only a geek thing where we just produced something that could be used uh, and uh, we put it in open source and we say we created a great thing just use it and now you will be for good now we what we found now we discovered that it's we actually delivering our impact when we are putting the thing the, the our tools and the, what we develop in the field a few other examples that then on not only on the phishing side uh, was one project that we did with an NGO called Pioneer, which is detecting forest fires before it's too late for the firefighters to intervene. And at first, we created just an algorithm to detect it with computer vision from small cameras that were quite sober and frugal. But it was just that. But the moment that it actually the project completely switched and actually becoming became a force for good is that when we actually uh, made the contact with the firefighters, with the people managing forests, so that we can actually implement it. And at the end, it raises alerts with the firefighters. And as as soon as the, the project now, as the, the full life cycle, it's actually now starting to really prevent fires. And if we hadn't been doing that, uh, we had, we'd have nothing. Another example, we worked a lot with another NGO called uh, Kota Climate, which is basically monitoring um, how people speak in the media about the ecological transition. So it's ca counting the quantity and the quality of interventions in the media and ranking uh, TV and radio chains together to see who has been talking about what topic and uh, having some barometers to see the evolutions. And at first, same thing, we created algorithms and we created some LinkedIn posts and it was good and we had a lot of buzz with it. But the project actually started to become quite important when with our work, with the KPIs that we produced, this NGO created a task force to change the regulation around media and the ecological transition. And we always see that aspect where if we stick to keeping just having a geek thing when we think is good, we're not actually delivering, delivering something on the field. So that's why, even if we have a lot of other aspects to consider if, if a project is for good, that's the key important thing for us. And Theo, in that case, do you completely skip the intensity part, which I would say is reducing the environmental footprint and other aspects as well? Or do you have some basic guidelines that you follow all the time? Yeah, we have, uh, because we have one good thing at Data for Good is that we, we were talking about that before. We now maintain a library in Python called Code Carbon that is helping us monitor the carbon footprint of what we do. And we are actually trying to do that the most that we can. It's not always feasible when you're working with volunteers because it's not a company. So sometimes people like don't use it because they don't know how to use it and we cannot really train them. But we do that as most as possible. And what we actually find found is that most of the time, because for all of those projects, it was not using generative AI. So like other AI algorithms, that is basically statistics. Statistics is not that heavy for a computation. So even if we, when we monitor it, uh, it's cool because we can actually have this uh, impact measurement of our actual impact, like the plus and the, and the negative part of it. But at, at the end, um, it's actually changing now that we have generative AI. And if we 
had been creating a product where uh, the generative AI was live and used by um, millions of users, that would be when the question would become so important that we actually would have some big decisions on do we kill it or not, or actually do we invent it or not, if we know that it will be deployed at such high scale. So we try to measure it. And one big part of it is not just not using some complicated algorithms in production or at all. That's like a good way of being sober is just not doing it. Anastasis, you mentioned that to be efficient to actually achieve its goal, a, a proper data for a good project should not be left only to geek. Is it something that you've practiced also? And do you have any um, good story to tell us about this? Absolutely. So what we usually do, we are more business focused in the sense that our clients are corporates and uh, businesses of any size that want to uh, showcase and monitor their sustainability KPIs. Uh, so we connect into their data systems or we prepare their data infrastructure, and then we are able to extract all the sustainability data and more general ESG data of sorts. Um, through, through that, what we hope to achieve is to automate the process of how and leave the, the why to them. Why do they need to reduce their carbon footprint? Why do they need to improve their ESG performance? And then to help them throughout this process. In this sense, we are trying to use data to reduce their own footprints and to improve their own environmental, social and governance performance. Um, so their success is our success and the tools they are using to implement uh, these, these goals is something that's very close at heart to us. Uh, through this process, we've found that uh, more often than not, uh, the need for AI comes in organically at some stage in the project. So we're always careful to avoid using it as a buzzword. But I do remember a specific example which uh, shed some light in the way we can use AI at uh, Dataforia. And it was all about uh, benchmarking. So we've had the, a particular case uh, where the client uh, wanted to see how they were performing against uh, other uh, peers in the industry with data that could not be found in specific databases or specialized uh, ESG websites, but that was embedded in a number of uh, sustainability reports. Uh, most of these in a PDF format, a uh, couple hundred pages long each. Uh, so when we started looking through there to find the right data, uh, at one point uh, we decided it, it it was going to take uh, a very long time, actually. Uh, so we tried to, to automate the process. We started with a few uh, basic text analytics. And uh, one thing led to another, and we found ourselves uh, working through a text classifier in a way to extract this textual data 
in a very structured format. And now, when we're talking about technical data like uh, carbon emissions, uh, like intensity, base years, uh, materiality topics, and all these, of course, this has to come with uh, very specialized knowledge. Uh, so that was the point where we had to stop and discuss between ourselves, even at the small scale we were applying with HISAT, uh, whether the, the footprint, the impact, of what we were hoping to achieve would surpass uh, the impact of building this model and deploying this model itself. And we found this as a rule of thumb ever since. Yeah, good rule of thumb. Makes total sense. Not easy yet, um, not not easy all the time to assess how much you will your clients will actually save. But I guess having this order of magnitude to one to 10, protects you to uh, yeah, minor um, estimation errors, I would say. Absolutely. That's the, that, that's the engineer of me speaking. So <laughs> yeah, that's the, the sort of case. We're never going to get it right. We just have to be uh, certain. You know, when I prepared this episode, I had very interesting discussion, very meaningful discussion with uh, Johan Fall in uh, Buster Franken, thanks to Anastasis' advice. And I remember Johan telling me, you know, maybe AI will just become like electricity or fridge, a technology that is so obvious that it will become invisible and we will not talk that much about it because we don't talk every day on elect- about electricity or the fact that we are able to produce cool, which is um, pretty amazing when you think about it. <laughs> So do you foresee this trend that AI will become, yeah, just AI, not a cool hype technology, but yeah, well, it's just AI, you know, it's just electricity. Um, What do you think about it, starting with Lou? Well, I think it's, as we were saying earlier in the podcast, I think it's already happening as uh, we're already using it every day in our lives, only like when you're going on the social media, it's algorithm behind when you're using internet, it's algorithm. So it's, it's already everywhere in our lives. Uh, I'm sure. And what, 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 sorry, what frightens me is uh, the pace uh, at which it's going right now. Uh, and uh, the fact that nobody's questioning it, especially politicals. I think it's uh, a subject that they're completely out of their reach and they don't understand, so they're not taking it seriously. While I believe we should, in a political instances, to take the subject to uh, ask the question uh, about the, the, the usages and the need that we have about those technologies because they're spreading uh, faster and faster and we need to ask ourselves about our needs. Maybe my idea around that is especially with like this new world with generative AI and and it's it's not only a question of chat GPT that is like the, the totem that we always talk about it's a question about generated human readable content that is multimodal so that means image plus text plus sound plus video plus whatever so that means that it's not a question about uh, being like a real intelligence, but it's actually emulating how we are in this world, what we do in this world, and how we interact with things. And so as soon as you you have that, and you're actually connecting pieces of 
like actions like reading and writing and so on, it becomes something that is it's natural to have it embedded everywhere in our life. If we just follow how it should like go, if we just listen to technocratic people. Uh, so it's it's logical that actually, yes, it can become obvious and invisible. For example, if you use Notion, there is now the AI part. Now it's labeled as AI because it's like the buzz. But at some point, it will be not. It will be something like the same thing that you use a keyboard and it writes for you and it helps you write faster. So it, it will be that because it's already that. And that's for sure. Uh, but is it like a good thing? That's another question. We always love to talk about uh, Jacques Ellul and uh, people that are have been studying like technology, and they are like some researchers and social social researchers are saying that a good technology has to be convivial. So that means that you you cannot create a dependency to it uh, because at some point there will be a problem, and this is something that we already see. Uh, if you ask a developer right now they are using GitHub Copilot and other AIs to write code. And I'm using it like six hours a day to write code faster. Uh, and now when I, when I don't have it because there is a problem with my server or I'm in a train and I don't have any networks, I know less how to code than before. But, but with it, I'm super faster. And this is a, a big question because as soon as you create dependency, uh, you make something that can create a lot of problems. So. I don't know if, if it has to be obvious and invisible to be more of a force for good than a destructive force, but for sure it, it is happening already. And I agree that now it's a buzz, so it's labeled AI, but it will dis disappear at, at some point. I would totally agree with uh, Theo on that. And uh, just to go back to the ages before writing was actually uh, democratized. Uh, there were all these uh, mnemonic devices and mind palaces and way of sustaining the most information you could within your own mind. And uh, then writing became easier because of uh, papyrus and uh, parchments and uh, the writing tools. It was certainly easier than writing things on stone tablets. And then th th there was a sort of disruption there and a sort of resistance from the society back then because people would tend to uh, forget how to remember stuff if everything was written down. But that was the way we passed knowledge from one generation to the other. And that was the way we could learn on the more, all the more and use our mind for creativity instead of remembering lots of things. That's the analogy I would see for AI as well. It is a tool that, as Theo said, can free up our time for creative stuff that can help us accelerate uh, what we are actually doing and take off the, the burden. I would see it more, more as a tool, therefore more as an, an integration within our daily lives, the same way we have books, the same way we have phones, the same way we have other tools, calculators, you name it. But in order for it uh, to be a force of good, not a destructive force, we need to set this trend in the right uh, trajectory. Uh, that's what the European Union is aiming to do with uh, the regulations about AI. Uh, that's what uh, our generation should do as well. So in order to make AI a force for good, in order to embed it, the way it should be in our daily lives. We need more people 
like you, Theo, like Lou, like Gail, uh, like you, dear listeners, to become part of this dialogue, part of the discussion, and act for positive change. Thanks a lot, Anastasis. It resonates a lot, I guess, with a lot of the listeners as well, and definitely with me. And my last question, Lou, to close the podcast on a positive note, could you share one piece of good news which made you optimistic recently about a path toward a more sustainable world? Okay, well, maybe you're going to say it's not a good news, but <laughs> I think it is. Uh, you, were, you were mentioning it uh, at the beginning of the podcast, but today with Data for Good, uh, we, we've been working on a project for several months uh, about uh, carbon bombs in the world. So this is not a fun topic, but I think what's positive about it is that um, we've uh, had uh, media coverage all around the world And I think a few years ago, this would have never happened because people didn't care about those problems. And the fact that those medias are putting, uh, are talking about those subjects in their front pages and, uh, and selected them as their um, recommend, uh, recommendation of the day and stuff, this is a positive thing, showing that uh, medias are more and more getting aware about uh, the subjects and trying to... Uh, use uh, the impact that they have to notify people and to inform to uh, help us go in the right direction. I'd say, I will say a, a very geek good news. In the past week, there has been the, the, the release with Hugging Face that I was like saying that I loved a lot uh, in, at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, there was a release of a model called, called Zephyr uh, 7B Beta, uh, which is basically um, like a, a geek code name for a new large language model. So the, the kind of algorithm for generative AI uh, that is free, open source, small, sober, uh, with very um, uh, like fast inference. So that means less energy consuming inference. That was a question I was explaining. And that is for the first time, more performant than the things that I'm doing with GPT uh, in production. So that means that for uh, the people that are called in the field GPU poor, so the people that don't have a GPU to do AI, that means like 99.999% of the world, if you're not working at like a, a tech giant company, uh, you can now have access for free and switch your actual model that you were using for AI to uh, like a pro proprietary closed model to, to something that is open source and free and less energy consuming and created uh, by people with uh, different kinds of values and something that you can actually fine tune, um, remove bias, audit, and so on. So that's actually for the, the first time that I've been using generative AI every day for a year in the past year. And now for the first time, I have something that I, I can put in my products that I actually trust a lot more because I, I know I can control it in a way. And what about you, Anastasis? What is the good news that you want to share? Right. Um, so a few weeks ago, uh, we had significant news in the corporate sustainability reporting sector. So all over the EU, we are waiting for new sustainability reporting standards that would uh, require a lot more companies, uh, so five times more companies than today, uh, to report on and reduce their carbon footprint and also the general sustainability performance. And uh, part of this was put to a vote in the European Parliament. 
and there were some moves to hinder the vote and to reject the motion or set it back a couple of years at least by certain parties. And it was looking quite grim. It was quite unsure if this was going to pass. Obviously, if this doesn't pass, then the whole environment and sustainability progress is left two years behind. The very good news is that this passed with a majority. Uh, so we are continuing on as planned uh, on the vision to become the first net zero continent. Uh, so that for me is great news. We shouldn't take it for granted, but uh, people all over the place are working towards this uh, same goal. Well, it was a lovely chat and, and it was great. Actually, it was a bit less technical than I would expect it with geek like you are but maybe it was because the right question to be asked is really the use of ai and this kind of ratio i love anesthesis the way you 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 put it like you know multiply by 10 otherwise doesn't worth it and and you know starting with the uh, a real use case and all the tips that you shared about how uh, lou and theo about how with data for good you manage to create massive impact using AI, but actually using AI, which doesn't mean necessarily the latest, shiniest model. So thanks a lot. I really do mean it, uh, the three of you. It was great talking to you. And as I mentioned, I hope that we will have some room in the Green IO conference hosted by API Days to talk about data for good. I will try to convince uh, some of my uh, guests tonight to be with us in Paris. Um, I'll let you know more in the next episode. Thanks a lot once again for joining the Green IO podcast tonight. Thank you for listening to this Green IO episode. In episode 29, we will talk about anthropology and geography and Anthropocene. And yes, it will still be a tech-focused episode but taking a huge step back thanks to Maxime Blondeau. Yes, the one and only thought leader on geography and ecology and technology who shares one map a day on LinkedIn to his 100,000 followers. Quick note for my European-based listeners, you are invited to the first Green IO conference in Paris on December the 8th for free. I partnered with API Days to bring you an amazing lineup starting with Aurore Stéphane, Tristan Nito, Theo Alves da Costa, and all the teams involved in the 2023 Sustainable Digital Challenge. The link to register is in the episode notes. Hope to see many of you. And before you leave, a small message from our sponsor. No, I'm kidding. Green.io remains a free and independent podcast, and so we need your help to keep it that way. We have zero marketing budget, so you can support us by spreading the word. Rate the podcast five stars on Apple and Spotify, share an episode on social media or directly with a relative. That's a good idea also. Thanks for your support. It means a lot to us, us, us being me, but also Tani Levitt, our amazing podcast producer, and Gilles Tellier, our amazing podcast curator. And stay tuned by subscribing to Green.io on your favorite podcast platform or via the Green.io mailing list. The link is in the episode notes, but you already know the drill. Every two weeks, you will get more insights and premium content to help you, the responsible technologists scattered all over the world, build a greener digital world, one byte at a time.